Good morning, church family. If you would take your copy of God's Word and open with me to the Gospel according to Luke as we continue our study through the Gospel of Luke on this Lord's Day morning. We continue in the section of chapter 10 where we left off in our previous time together, Luke chapter number 10, and we're going to give attention to the reading of verses 21 to 24 as we come together and as we worship the one true and living God as we read Holy Scripture. Read with me beginning in verse 21. As I read aloud, you follow along with me. This is the Word of God and it reads as follows. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Then turning to the disciples, He said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you, that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And this morning I am preaching on this subject, Jesus rejoices in the sovereignty of God in saving sinners. And you may be seated if you would join me in prayer. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we come before your throne once again in a posture of worship and complete dependence. And we ask this morning as we gather and as we worship in this corporate setting, in this Lord's Day service, that you would minister unto our hearts, that you would strengthen our faith, and that you would encourage your church as we come together on this Lord's Day morning. We pray that through the hearing of the Word of God, that you would strengthen souls, that you would enlighten eyes, that you would build up the church, and that you would save sinners. And again, we ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we come together on this Lord's Day morning, we remember the context from where we left off in our previous time together, that Jesus was preparing 72 missionaries to send them out, to send them out to preach the Word of God and to engage in miracles and wonders and signs that would actually confirm that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And of course, they would go out and they would engage just as Jesus had commanded them. And of course, as Jesus commanded, they would experience trials and difficulties along the way. But also, as they came back from their preaching and from their, their journey two by two into the various villages, uh, they gave a report, as we saw last time. And their report was a report of joy. It was not a report of complaints and difficulties. They, they did not come together and, and, and give a long list of grievances to Jesus. No, instead they came with a, a, a joyful report. And they declared that they were astounded that even the demons believed them. And even the demons would obey them in Jesus' name. So Jesus explains that they had received this power 
from him. And then he said, but I want you to know of greater things. Remember where we left off last week, that Jesus said, don't just find yourself astounded with the fact that an evil spirit would obey you in my name. I gave you that authority. But think on these things, that even your names are written in heaven. And of course, this would have been something that Jesus was referencing in terms of their salvation. Keep in mind where they were. Jesus is standing in front of these 72 missionaries receiving this report. They had gone out sent by him. They had come back to give the report. Jesus is saying, I want you to think on these things. Even your names are written in heaven. And why should they be astounded with that? Well, this is why. Think on these things, missionaries. I haven't even died on the cross yet. I haven't gone to the grave. I haven't been resurrected from the tomb. I haven't ascended to the right hand of the Father and sat down in a place of honor and authority. But your salvation is so secure that it was written in heaven before the foundations of the world were established. And I haven't yet even paid in full your debt, but your names are written in heaven. Think on these things, missionaries. And so it is that we should think on these things too. Now as we come to this passage today, we find a very unique passage before us. We see here in this text, in this passage, that it says that Jesus then at that same hour, at that same time, He rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. They bring a a testimony of joy. Jesus says, you want to have real joy? Think on this. And so he raises their attention and their affection to higher things, eternal things. And then it says, Jesus rejoices in the Holy Spirit. Three different times in the New Testament we find references to Jesus weeping. Only one time In all of the New Testament, do we ever see Jesus rejoicing? Doesn't mean that Jesus was some morose character that's just walking about discouraged and depressed. As Martin Lloyd-Jones would say, that's a horrible testimony for a Christian, by the way. That's not the picture. We have a man of sorrows who's acquainted with the, the, the trials of the flesh who sympathizes with our weaknesses, but he's not depressed. He is very much joyful. But oftentimes, we see like in Philippians chapter 2, that even for the joy that was set before him, he endured the, the cross, the Roman cross, despising the shame, and he went all the way to the horrific, ignominious death of the Roman cross. But that joy that was set before him was future-oriented. There was an eschatological view there of future glory. And we see that, do we not? You can go to John chapter 17 when Jesus prays in that entire chapter to the Father, that high priestly prayer, and Jesus speaks about my joy. And of course, even there, there's in essence this this future-oriented aspect of Jesus' joy. In this text, we see a present tense display of the Son of the living God in flesh rejoicing 
in the Holy Spirit. And what was the basis of his joy? Did his team win the Super Bowl? Perhaps that was the source of his joy. Maybe it's because pitchers and catchers have reported for spring training, and that gives us an indication that baseball season's right around the corner. Is that the reason of his joy? What's the reason of his joy? His college football team won a game, perhaps? You know? Is, is that the source of his joy? Maybe he, he, he found out because of a notification on his iPhone that Netflix released a, a wonderful movie or a series of shows that he could give himself to. Was that the source of his joy? What was the source of his joy? The source of his joy was the grand, deep well of the sovereignty of God in saving sinners. Think on these things that your joy may be full. You want to be a joyful Christian, and by the way, Christians should be joyful, then you shouldn't be a shallow Christian. You should give yourself to the study of the deep well of the sovereignty of God. So oftentimes it is that the sovereignty of God is rejected, it is avoided, and people make statements like, well, I, I didn't sign up for seminary, so... I just want to like read the gospel. I don't want to really find out about all the sovereignty stuff, especially the sovereignty of God and salvation. It's too complex. I didn't want to go to seminary. I didn't sign up for seminary. That's not my calling. So just preach the gospel. Okay, which one? Which gospel should I start with? You say, well, I've always heard, you know, when someone comes to faith, you, you always tell them to read the gospel of John. Bad choice if you're trying to get away from the sovereignty of God. Right out of the chute, chapter 1, sovereignty of God and salvation. You're not born of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Move on throughout uh, the, 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 the gospel of John. You get to John chapter 3. You have the sovereignty of God and salvation. You go to John chapter 6, sovereignty of God and salvation. John chapter 10, sovereignty of God and salvation. It's, it's all throughout the Gospel of John. And the point that I want to emphasize as we look at this passage before us is that if you're trying to avoid the sovereignty of God in saving sinners, you can't read your Bible. It is all through the Word of God. Let us give attention to this text and see how Jesus rejoices in the sovereignty of God in salvation. Verse 21. In that same hour, He rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank You, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that You have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was Your gracious will. We see, first of all, Jesus Himself rejoices in the sovereignty of God in salvation. And notice, He's rejoicing specifically in verse 21 in the doctrine of election. In that same hour, He's rejoicing in the Holy Spirit as He's thinking about these 72 missionaries, their names are written in heaven. And how did they get there? Their names. And how will they get there personally in the future? Well, it's because they were elected. It's because they were chosen. And so Jesus rejoices in this truth in the Holy Spirit and then launches off 
in a prayer to God, in a prayer to the Father. We see here a wonderful, in this, in this text before us, we see a wonderful display, by the way, of the doctrine of the Trinity. As you well know, as students of the Bible, you don't have a place in the Bible where you can go to that says, okay, now here, let me explain the doctrine of the Trinity. Let's start, first of all, with the doctrine of God the Father, and then God the Son, and, and then God the Holy Spirit. You don't have a passage like that. What you do have is from Genesis to Revelation, you see the unpacking and the revelation of the doctrine of the Trinity, that God exists as a triune God of three distinct, co-equal, and co-eternal persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In this passage, we see Jesus, God the Son, in human flesh, rejoicing in God the Spirit, praying to God the Father. And this is a beautiful thing, is it not? And notice in his prayer, he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Before he even talks about the fact that God revealed these truths of the mystery of salvation to certain individuals, and he concealed these truths from other individuals, raising to the surface the doctrine of election, he starts off with the fact that he calls his Father Lord of heaven and earth which frames this appropriately. Not only is the Father Lord of heaven and earth, but He is also Lord over the hearts of men, women, boys, and girls. And we see in this text that He says that you have revealed these truths to the little children. You have concealed these truths from those who are the learned ones. Now, what does that mean? Let's, let's pause and let's ask ourselves a question. What is he meaning in that prayer? What he's not saying is that if you have an education, you can't be saved. What he's not saying and communicating in that prayer is that you have to be a fool in order to be saved. It's not what he's saying. He's talking about those who are wise in their own eyes, those who are arrogant in their own hearts, and he's specifically referencing individuals like the Pharisees. He's referencing the learned lawyers, if you will, of the Sanhedrin, the religious elite of the Jews who thought themselves to be wise and thought themselves to know who God is. And yet, what Jesus is saying to the Father in this prayer is that, Father, you have chosen in your gracious will, by the way, to conceal this truth from those arrogant, self-righteous individuals. And in your gracious will, you have revealed it to the little children. He's not saying that you have to be a little child to be saved because plenty of adults were called out of darkness into the marvelous light of Christ, even in the early church setting. When Peter preached at Pentecost, it wasn't just little children who were responding. It was Adults who are responding. 3,000 of them, by the way. But the idea is that you have to come to God as a child, in childlike faith and dependence. You can't have this, this arrogant spirit, this self-righteous attitude, this know-it-all attitude. You can't come to God that way. Instead, you have to come as a child, and you have to come in utter dependence to God in order to be saved. That's what Jesus is saying in this prayer. 
This statement in the Gospel of Luke was not pinned to a theological think tank. This statement in the Gospel of Luke was not pinned and written to a group of PhD students who were preparing to write a dissertation on the doctrine of election. This statement contained here in Luke chapter number 10 in this prayer by Jesus to the Father was not written to establish a thesis for a formal moderated debate on the doctrine of election. This statement in the Gospel of Luke was not written so that people could argue over it. It was written so that we could understand some things about our God and so that we could be like these disciples and so that we could have hearts full of joy just as Jesus is rejoicing in this grand truth. You see, the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith in chapter 3 of God's Decree, paragraph 5, which is our doctrinal statement here at Praise Mill, says the following. Those of mankind that are predestined to life, God before the foundation of the world was laid according to His eternal and immutable purpose and the secret counsel and good pleasure of His will hath chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory out of His mere free grace and love without any other thing in the creature as a condition or cause moving Him thereunto. In other words, to summarize that paragraph, this is how you were saved if you were saved. God before the foundation of the world, not on the basis of what you would do or what you would think or what you would choose, not on the basis of your perceived value, God, based upon His gracious and sovereign will, His free grace and His free sovereign choice. By the way, God has ultimate free will, not man. God chose specific individuals unto Himself, not on the basis of their good deeds and not on the basis of what they would do in the future. God wrote your name in heaven. That is the doctrine of election. Now, think about this. Many people come to the doctrine of election and predestination, and, they, and, 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 and again, they, it's, it's a complex doctrine, so they come to it and they say, well, what this really means is that God elected certain people unto Himself, but this is how He does it. God looks through the tunnel of time, and He sees the, the choices of men, women, boys, and girls, and on the basis of their choice, either to receive Christ or to reject Christ, then he says, all right, I'm going to elect Josh because he chose Jesus. And Jim rejected Jesus, so I'm not writing his name in heaven. If, and that is the way that a lot of people teach the doctrine of predestination and election, if that's your view of God, dear friend, listen to me. That means God did not know everything. He had to look through the tunnel of time and learn some things. And then on the basis of what he learned, on the basis of human, depraved, sinful wills, then God is dependent upon their choices. And then he elects and writes names in heaven. That is not the God of the Bible. Period. End of sentence, end of paragraph, end of subject. That is not the God of Holy Scripture. 
God knows all things at all times. He doesn't have to learn anything. He doesn't need chat GPT. He doesn't need an iPhone. He doesn't need Google. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't need anyone to teach him anything. He doesn't need to read any commentary. He doesn't need to look at the New York Times front page. He doesn't need to learn a thing. God is God. And he doesn't learn things. Second of all, election is not based upon what you do. God is not dependent upon you. If God wants to save you, He is not dependent upon what you do in order to elect you. Romans chapter number 9 is a definitive passage. In verses 10 through 13, we find these words. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac... Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved but Esau I hated. They had not been born. They had not done anything good or bad. God's choice of Jacob and his rejection of Esau was not, according to this text in the Bible, based upon what they would have done. God is not looking into the future to see what Jacob would do or what Esau would do. So that his purpose of election might stand, God determined to love Jacob and to hate Esau. And that's what the text says. And if Jacob had gotten what he deserved, the text would say, Jacob I hated and Esau I hated too. But it doesn't say that. It says, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. But... Esau, I hated. There's a comparison. And the point is, is that God chose to love Jacob, not on the basis of Jacob's goodness, not on the basis of Jacob's religiosity, not on the basis of of Jacob's choice for God, but on the basis of God's choice for Jacob. And that's why his name was written in heaven. The doctrine of election is very clear when it comes time to pray together. In every prayer meeting I have ever been in in the life of this church when we have prayed for individuals to be saved. I can't think of a time we've gathered for a prayer service and we haven't prayed for the salvation of unbelievers. It's a beautiful thing. We have our prayer time on Wednesday evenings and I hope that you're present for that. If you're not, then you need to be. We gather and pray every single Wednesday and we're praying for souls to be saved. When we gather for our once-a-month corporate prayer service here on Sunday afternoons after our fellowship meal, we're oftentimes praying for the church in a specific country and for the salvation of sinners. Individuals, specifically Arminians, become Calvinists when it comes time to pray for souls to be saved. They will 
say. It is on the basis of, of human free will. It is based on, 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 on individuals' free choice of God. That's what determines people's salvation. But then when they start praying, they start praying like this. Oh God, we pray now that you would save Jim. Now why would you pray for God to save Jim if it's on the basis of Jim's free choice? Why don't you just go bang on Jim's door and compel him to just do something? The reason that you pray before you go knock on Jim's door is because you, you know, you know that the only way that Jim will ever be saved is for God to do something that then would cause Jim to respond. We have to see this. John Flavel said it this way, we preach and pray and you hear, but there is no motion Christward until the Spirit of God blows upon them, end quote. The Bible teaches predestination. Ephesians 1.5 says, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Ephesians 1.11 says, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. The word there, repeated in Ephesians chapter number 1, that is translated predestined is prohorizo in the Greek. Uh, pro before, horizo to determine. And from horizo, we get the English word horizon from. It was a word that would have been used by sailors in a port that would chart out on a map their destination before they ever left the port as they would go across a body of water to another specific port. They couldn't see it. They're looking across the sea. The horizon is there. But beyond the horizon, they were determining by their calculations where this ship would end up. God, in His gracious will, in His sovereign purpose, has charted out the end result of our destiny before the foundation of the world was, was ever laid. And if God had not determined it, then we would never end up in heaven. The whole of humanity would, would, would cause the bowels of hell to expand. It is only based upon God's election and His choice of individuals to predestine them to salvation that they would end up in heaven. That's why their names are written in heaven because they are so certain that they're going to get there even before Jesus has died for them on the cross. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7, But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory. That word translated decreed is the same word translated predestined in Ephesians 1. This is what Jonathan Edwards said. Quote, Those who have received salvation are to attribute it to sovereign grace alone and to give all the praise to Him who makes them to differ from others. End quote. In other words, I'll say this again. I'll try to remember at the very end. But in case I fail to remember this, this doctrine that Jesus is embracing, this doctrine that Jesus is praying and rejoicing in the Holy Spirit as He prays to the Father, this doctrine of predestination and election, this doctrine of sovereign grace is a pride crusher. 
anyone who is running around in evangelicalism with a capital C Calvinist on their, on their suit or on their, on their jacket or on their, on their shirt and they're running around with a prideful heart acting as if somehow they deserve to be elected by God and predestined by God need to study further. The more that you study this doctrine, it causes our hearts to swell, to rejoice with Jesus. That if it had not been for God doing this great work according to His gracious will, then we would have perished on our very best day offering up to God in our own flesh. In our best religious service to God, we would have deserved hell. The only reason that we can gather in this room today and sing the gospel of God and rejoice and encourage one another singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs is because God chose to save us. Don't you see this? This is not the work of men. It should cause your hearts to swell. It should break you to the point to the dust of the earth. See, you didn't do it. He speaks about two groups. The first group are those that these truths were concealed from. Specifically the wise and understanding. And then he speaks about another group that he revealed it to. Specifically the little children. As I've stated before, the wise and understanding would have been like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the Sanhedrin, the learned individuals that were self-righteous in their own eyes. That's oftentimes, by the way, why Jesus taught in parables. You do, you do understand that when Jesus taught in parables, he wasn't just trying to give nice little stories that were memorable. You do understand that, right? In Luke chapter number 8, if you'll backtrack, and remember we covered this, it says this, and when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, to you, mathetes, to you disciples, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others, they are in parables, so that seeing with their physical eyes, they may not see with their spiritual eyes. And hearing with their physical ears, they may not understand with their spiritual ears in their heart. In other words, Jesus taught with parables to instruct the elect, but to conceal the gospel from the reprobate. Romans chapter 9, verse 18 after he talks about Jacob have I loved and Esau, but Esau have I hated, he then says this, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Now this is a difficult doctrine. But what I say to you is that we at Praise Mill Baptist Church will not apologize for what the Bible actually says. We just have to say what the Bible says and believe what the Bible says. And this is what the text says in Romans 9. It says, So then he, 
God has mercy on whomever He wills. He wills. Whose will? God's will. That's who receives mercy based on God's will. And then, who is judged and damned and hardened? Well, it's whomever He wills. And we just have to see this. The second group that is mentioned are those that receive the truth of the gospel and they are described as little children. They are not just little children, but they are individuals who come to God as dependent babes. Seeing themselves as nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. I don't come to God with a whole lot of religious works in my hands so that God would be impressed with me. I come broken. I come before Him completely dependent. I come before Him recognizing that it's nothing that I've done. It is not based on my performance. As John Calvin said, quote, If our faith were not grounded in God's eternal election, it is certain that Satan might pluck it from us every minute, end quote. You see, the Bible teaches that we are chosen by God. In Colossians 3.12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. By the way, if there was ever a text that taught that those who are chosen by God should be humble, read Colossians 3. Have humility. And meekness in your hearts. First Corinthians chapter one, Paul writes this to the church, to the church at Corinth in verses twenty-seven to twenty-nine. But God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. For God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that purpose, no human being might boast in the presence of God. Do you see this? Now, who does it say chose? Man chose or God chose? God chose. Repetition. God chose. Repetition. God chose. Purpose. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Understand this. No one will ever walk through the gates of glory and hear Jesus congratulate them on their wisdom in choosing Him. It'll not happen once. A.W. Pink said it this way, quote, The sovereignty of God is the foundation of all Christian theology. The center of gravity in the system of Christian truth. It is the sun around which all of the other planets circle. God is God, not merely in name, but in reality, end quote. I've said it this way before, I'll say it again. Everyone that's within the realm of orthodoxy and evangelicalism wants a sovereign God when it comes to politics, creation, making sure that the laws of nature don't cause the world to implode in an instant. Everyone wants a sovereign God when it comes to really big things. But then when it gets to the whole point of like the personal issue of a human soul, Suddenly, find people that want to be on like different sides of the. Oh, no, hang on, hang on now. I'm all for praying for God to bring about the right leader for our nation because you know these 
socio-political things and all this stuff. I mean, we, we, need a, we, need a, we need a good leader. When it comes to the salvation of Jim's soul, now we want to have an argument on whether or not it's on the basis of Jim's free will or God's free will. Well, what does the Bible say? Let's just believe what the Bible says. Let's just build our theology on the pages of Scripture. 1 Peter 2.9 but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He's talking to the church. 1 Peter 5.13, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen. John 15.16, listen to this. You did not choose me, but... I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. What can we learn from verse 21? Well, we learn from verse 21 that the doctrine of election should cause our hearts to swell with gratitude. R.C. Sproul said it this way, the sovereignty of God is God's favorite doctrine and it would be your favorite doctrine if you were God. Second of all, we see. Jesus rejoices in the authority of Christ as judge. All things have been handed over to, to, to me by my Father. Uh, this is a familiar statement to us, and it should be, because we see it in the Great Commission text. In Matthew chapter number 28, verses 18 through 20, it starts off and it says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority has been given to Jesus by the Father. Meaning that we've already seen it in our study of Luke, have we not? Jesus has authority over demons. Jesus has authority over the laws of nature. Jesus walks upon the top of the water. Jesus raises the dead. Jesus forgives sins. Jesus has authority. His authority has been put on display in his earthly ministry. Jesus in his prayer says, I praise you. And then he says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. In other words, Jesus brings all of the Father's will to pass as planned before the foundation of the world. John 3, 35 and 36, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Here's the point of this statement in this prayer. Jesus is saying, not only do I praise you, Father, for the fact that you have concealed these things from the self-righteous and you have revealed these things to the little ones, but I want to praise you for giving me all authority to do the Father's will, which means to save those who repent, and to judge the unrighteous. All authority has been given to Jesus as judge. And then, the, the last part of verse 22, Jesus rejoices in the revelation of God. No one knows who the Son is except the Father. Or who the Father is except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. In other words... What he's saying here in this passage 
is that the only way that anyone comes to know who Jesus truly is as the Son of the living God, the Messiah, the Christ of God, the Savior of sinners, is that the Father is gracious to draw you to Him. John 6, No man comes to me except the Father who sent me should draw him, right? That's the point of the passage. And so, what we need to understand is that it is the Father who reveals the Son to sinners. It is the Son who puts on display who the Father is. Remember, when Jesus was preparing to leave his disciples in John 14, the disciples were discouraged, and he said, I go to prepare a place for you. You remember that passage? Well, then Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Okay, we, we get it. You're leaving us. We're frightened. But just show us the Father, and that'll be enough for us. And this is what Jesus said. Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. That's the role of the Son. Well, first we see Jesus' prayer and how he rejoices in the sovereignty of God and salvation. And then last of all, we see Jesus encourages his disciples to rejoice in the sovereignty of God and salvation. Verse 23. Then turning to the mathete, so the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. Notice the blessing of salvation. He turns to the disciples after talking to God. Now he talks to men. And he says, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. In other words, you have received this glorious blessing. Your eyes have been opened. You see these things that are true. Those of the world, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who believe not. But you, dear ones, you have, you have had your eyes opened. The eyes of your heart have been awakened. And you see, our triune God engages in joyful unity together. Father, Son, and Spirit rejoicing together. And when the eyes of sinners are opened and they come by faith to God, they rejoice with their triune God when they see that salvation is of the Lord. And by the way, Christians should be joyful people. In Acts chapter 8, verse 39, we see, and when they came up out of the water, this is, again, when uh, Philip is baptizing the Ethiopian eunuch in the desert. It says, when they came up out of the water, the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. Romans 14, 17 says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Romans 15, 13 says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9 says, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Jude speaks of great joy. And so, dear Christians, hear me. We, because we have been saved by God, because God has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world, we should be filled with great joy 
recognizing that our names are written in heaven and that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And then finally, in verse 24, speaking to these disciples, he speaks about their privilege. For I tell you, the many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. In a very interesting way, what Jesus is saying to those disciples is that the prophets of old and the kings of old looked forward with anticipation for the coming of Christ, and they longed to see what these disciples were seeing. And they longed to hear what these disciples were hearing. And they never saw it, and they never heard it. Jesus looks into their faces and says, but you have. And you're privileged greatly as a result. This is a unique time. This time would never be repeated ever again. Jesus is standing with these disciples between His incarnation, taking on human flesh, and the cross, and the tomb, and the resurrection, and His glorious ascension. And He's standing there in in human flesh. God, very God of very God, speaking with disciples, saying, you're privileged. In other words, this time will never be repeated. Here we are on this side, and we look back, and we read the record that Luke, the historian, has given us, and we see what's happening, and we can imagine it because we have the beautiful Word of God open before us, but we can't fully understand it in the sense of experiencing it personally because it will never be repeated. But here's the point. These are privileged ones who experience something unique. But in the coming ages, when Christ returns, and there's the glorious resurrection of the dead, those in faith, these ones, these disciples, would have a new body, and they will rule and reign with Christ in eternity future, and they will be with Him because God will be with them as their God, their King, Christ, ruling and reigning in eternity. And we're going to be there too. And we're going to see Him with our eyes, and we're going to hear Him with our ears, and we're going to fellowship with Him in eternity. But we'll never be able to experience what they experienced before glorification, walking with God in human flesh, pre-cross, pre-resurrection, pre-glorification. They were privileged. Moses would have rejoiced to hear the thundering sermons of Jesus as the prophet greater than Moses. Isaiah would have rejoiced to be able to see the fulfillment of the suffering servant crucified, offered up as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Solomon would have rejoiced to hear the grand wisdom of Christ in his teaching and preaching. David would have longed to see Christ the king greater than David, whose throne will have no end. These disciples saw him, heard him, fellowshiped with him in a unique time in human redemptive history that will never, ever, ever 
be repeated. So what can we learn? Well, here's what we learn from this message. Let's walk away as a church today. Someone asked you on Facebook, what did you learn at church today? You can say, well, my pastor preached on the doctrine of election. Oh yeah, well, what did that do for you? I hope. I hope you would say, well, I don't know, I fell asleep. I hope that you wouldn't say, well, it made me mad. Hope what you could say. Well, it caused me to do exactly what it caused Jesus to do in his earthly ministry. It caused me to be happy in God. It caused me to rejoice. Why? Why? Why would the doctrine of election cause you to rejoice? Because it makes me see how weak I am and how strong God is. Why would it cause you to rejoice? Because my name is written in heaven and I'm not there yet. Why would it cause you to rejoice? Because God is good. His gracious will. By the way, that's intentional. Jesus' prayer was that it was God's gracious will. Because God in His grace has chosen to save sinners who deserve to go to the pit of hell, wrote our names in His book before the foundation of the world was established, and has revealed it to us even before we get there so that while we're getting there, we can be happy along the way. Rejoice, dear church, in the doctrine of election. Martin Luther said, let all the free will in the world do all it can with all its strength. It will never give rise to a single instance of ability to avoid being hardened if God does not give the Spirit or of meriting mercy if it is left to its own strength. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, I believe the doctrine of election because I am quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen Him. And I am sure He chose me before I was born or else He would have never chosen me afterwards. He must have elected me for reasons unknown to me for I never could find any reason in myself why He should have looked upon me with special love. We preach the doctrine of election at Praise Mill Baptist Church if you're here today as a guest without blush, without apology, because it's what the Bible says, and it's because God is good, and it's because man is not, and it's because we deserve the wrath of God, and it's only by the gracious will of God that any soul will ever enter the kingdom of God. Dear Christian, rejoice in these big grand truths written in the Bible that's open before you. And if you're here today as an unbeliever and you say, I know without a shadow of a doubt that I am guilty before God. And I know that I am lost. And I know that I need to be saved. I want to tell you exactly what Jesus told to his disciples, specifically to Peter, when he said, who do men say that I am? They said, well, some say that you're John the Baptist. Some say that you're Elijah. Some say that you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But who do you say that I am? Peter, outspoken one, said, you are the Christ the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father 
who is in heaven. If you're in this room today and you know that you're lost and you know that Jesus is the Savior of the world and that you can only be saved through Him, flesh and blood, even including this preacher, has not revealed this to you. But our Father who is in heaven, flee to Christ. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Flee to Christ. Let us pray together.